Welcome, everyone, to The Present Show. There's nothing like the present. This is a show about it. Uh, as always, Lele, thanks for being with us. Cheers. Ciao, Pat. Ciao, ciao. And today with us, we have a very special guest, Chris Dancy, who is labeled as the most connected man on the planet. Does that mean you have the most amount of Facebook friends or LinkedIn contacts? What does it mean, Chris, to be the most connected man? Thanks for being with us. Definitely not LinkedIn contacts, because uh, I don't believe in uh, actually connecting to people online unless you have a pre-established relationship. I even have like a, an entire intimacy framework that I choose what uh, services to connect with people and at what level. Uh, you know, so for instance, genetics is a very, very super invasive, you know, Fitbit is a little bit less. But so, yeah, so it's definitely not that. I think uh, that the, the moniker most connected comes from uh, for about 11 years, I've been monitoring and managing my health, physical health, mental well-being, and behavior via an elaborate system of devices that watched me uh, and then gave me feedback, whether that feedback was in the form of a push notification or uh, uh, lights changing colors when I'm upset, etc. It looks a lot like most people live today. Most people have reminders on their phones to leave for appointments or if they have smart devices like watches, they'll tell them to stand up if they've sat too long. I was just kind of early <laughs> to orchestrate my life as a database that could be queried and acted upon. Perfect. So That's, uh, go ahead, Lily. No, so this makes you uh, more connected in a way that you have uh, a lot of data and information about yourself, your flow, and about how yourself is actually interacting with the world. So this is not only the, the body as such, but also in, in the mind in this case, right? So I, I guess the, how do your body behaves is also connected with also your mood and your feelings. And so, so it goes beyond the physical connection. Correct. And um, I was actually, I just did an article for Time Magazine talking a little bit about AI and kind of the pervasiveness of what's happening in the world and how, you know, kind of machine learning is starting to, I think, understand us in some ways better than we understand ourselves. And in that, I, I made the case that, you know, if you look at the journey I took, it really wasn't even, you know, one of hooking my body up first. The first things I watched were really social connections, things like LinkedIn, things like Facebook, because I realized I was more motivated by the feedback loops from those systems between 2006 and 2009 than I was, I mean, I was 320 pounds. That's 120 pounds. That's 100 pounds heavier than I am right now. Uh, I smoke two packs of cigarettes a day. I mean, it, it was obvious uh, by looking in the mirror that I wasn't taking care of myself. But to me, that was too big of a hurdle to even start with. So I looked very small at how often I put stuff online and what types of things my friends liked versus didn't like. So for instance, if I posted things online of me smoking cigarettes and being drunk and those sorts of things, I got lots of attention. I mean, so it, wasn't, it wasn't a stretch uh, if you just literally use Facebook as and understand, I mean, you have to look at what you're posting and what people feedback on, because you don't get reports from Facebook. You know, this is a big deal. Hmm. Uh, and because all of the data that I created, anytime I put something on Facebook, it wrote to my Google calendar in the background. I didn't copy everything manually. 
But then anytime someone replied or liked the response, so I knew right away, not right away, I mean, there was a very obvious pattern within a day, but I knew right away within a week, wow, these people need me sick. Hmm. They need me sick. Uh, and again, you know, for, for 2007, it was kind of mind blowing, but I started being really, really deliberate early on about, well, what types of things do they like that would still, I hate to say it, but get the validation of, you know, the likes and comments, but also not be the person they didn't need me to be. Mm-hmm. You know? And it's, it's, it was very weird. And I talk about this in my book, you know, the first time I broke my cigarettes up and took a picture of them, no one liked it. Like nobody, you know, they're like, you know, you would think your friends would really support you. And today it's kind of this healthy stunts you see people do like, you know, they fasting for a month and they have all these other things and they look for a lot of validation and commitment online. And I think a lot of times those things are, you can get those online, but in the early days doing stuff like that wasn't as stunty and it wasn't as rewarded well by your friends. So today Mm -hmm. if we want to get, kind of feedback from your friends or at least noticed because let's let's be honest a lot of people are connected to hundreds thousands of people you almost have to tag a location put a photo use certain language and maybe even add a feeling and that that's just a lot of exploitative data you have to create to even get your friends to to you know notice some of the things you do unless you're connected to people you know who curtail their i mean i only have so many friends on facebook i only have so many connections on linkedin I just think if I connect to you digitally, I owe you my attention. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? <laughs> yes. So, so your, your journey into mindfulness or awareness really started with, was it becoming more aware of yourself or more aware of your relationship with the friends or more awareness of the friends? Have you ever thought about it that way? Yeah, you know, there's, there's really two two lanes if you think about this 11-year journey. The first lane really was, you know, this meta-awareness of myself via these systems that connected to me. Let's be honest, right? It's not like I woke up one day and said, I'm just going to go to retreat. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't happen, right? You know, there's a lot of starts and stops. But for me, those don't even, I didn't have the starts and stops. I didn't try to meditate and then stop. I just literally started becoming more aware secondhand because, you know, again, it was very painful to confront a lot of the ways that I thought systematically, just without even thinking. It just was a routine. It was more than a routine. It was like my firmware was smoke, drink, overeat, yell, spend money you don't have, make people feel small. I used to joke, I mean well, uh, meaning I knew how to be mean well. Um, So, you know, again, you would need a lot of therapy and a lot of support from a lot of people who were interested in I think your wellness, and, and again, what people don't tell you is that that's hard. If you're at a certain place in your life, you usually are surrounded by people. You'll have one or two that want you to be, you know, better, but not everyone. Usually people need you to run it. That was kind of the first bit, and that lasted until about 2012. But by 2012, I was in need of some serious kind of like, okay, how do I kind of deal with the mind? And that's when I found a group in Boulder called Buddhist Geeks. Uh, and I went to one of their conferences, uh, someone there was, had heard about me. I wasn't really in the news yet. Um, yeah. And I I just started a, a, you know, a really easy practice, just, you know, sitting five minutes here and there at conferences and meeting with these groups. 
but it got real in 2014. Because, uh, you know, by that point, I'd done a TED Talk. I'd been on the cover of magazines. I'd had a TV show shot, the whole bit, right? No book yet, but still, it was pretty, you know, crazy ascent. Uh, and that's when I tell people I kind of had what I would call a data PTSD, where I'd so weaponized the numbers of life against me that I was the opposite end of the spectrum. So now, instead of being surrounded by people who needed me to be in a certain state, I was surrounded by systems and numbers that actually kept pushing me forward. And I felt like I was evaporating. I was changing faster than, uh, you know, it was like ego death every 30 seconds. It was like, why am I thinking this way? I didn't even recognize my mind. And that's when I started getting hard, I wouldn't say hardcore, but like going to a weekly group uh, to, to sit with a group. Um, and then going to retreats, you know, five-day, 10-day silent retreats. And it took probably two years of that intensity of practice to come to some sort of equilibrium where eating a donut doesn't make me feel like I'm going to die and skipping meditation doesn't make me feel like I'm evil. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? <laughs> Hope that isn't too intense. It's <laughs> uh, perfect. And how does it your, uh, so now that you are, so much connected, right? Mm -hmm. As we discussed before. So you have a, a big number of data and data sources. At the yeah. same time, you need some kind of like mind peace for your mind to not have too much, you know, notification or being overcome. So where do you find this balance in between uh, what is outside you that is pushing and guiding you information, your days and so on, and you, who you are and your mind and everything else? Yeah, so, so I took the same, I hate to say it, but I took the same principles that guided me through the kind of beginning mental transformation and the second stage, which was, I would say, the beginning of the physical transformation, which, of course, the physical and the mental kind of led to different career choices, different opportunities. It's kind of weird how something starts moving and then it becomes bigger than you itself. But I, when I kind of hit that data PTS period, PTSD period, I mean, one thing was sure, I wasn't going to turn it off. Like, it was, there was, I didn't want to stop it, right? I, uh, there was a certain amount of success that I wanted to continue, but I needed to understand. So I started looking at the interactions between what was saved about me and what I had allowed to be returned to me to serve different purposes. So for instance, uh, location uh, reminders are great for all sorts of things. You know, people use them for not forgetting something at the grocery store, asking Siri or Google or Alexa to remind you when you get to the grocery store for milk or anything like that. But what I found was I could start to use location-based alerts for things that brought me more peace and reminding. So one of the first early ones I did was anytime I came home, so, and that's, location-based alerts can be on entry or on exit. Um, so anytime I came home, I got a message that said, don't forget your family loves you. They could have had a stressful day. Check in with yourself before you go inside. Um, and those kind of location-based alerts, which used to do things to help me with controlling my food or thinking about my food or thinking about my spending, all the things that, <laughs> you know, are very cliche today in today's cybernetic world, they evolved to being very deliberate about even how I dealt with strangers. So when I would go, I geofenced all the shopping centers and all the places I would frequent for food or groceries or even clothing. 
And the reminders would start to remind me to interact with the people in those places, the ones I didn't know. Uh, so for me, what I noticed was technology by 2016 had become ridiculously optimized and making sure I didn't waste any time. But it also removed everybody. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, everything was just waiting for me as if it had been orchestrated by the cloud. You know, everything from how I ate to like when I left for the airport was orchestrated. And yes, I was super efficient, but like I was not staying mindful. I was, you know, I was on autopilot, but super efficient. So, but again, by forcing friction into those to remind me to speak with people or by leaving the house with only an Apple watch, which forces me to pay for things with my wrist, which is really weird if you've ever actually done it because you have to like swipe it and the cashiers will ask you questions. You know, I had a credit card. Um, you can have custom, custom credit card printed. So you have a, your credit card, but you don't have any picture you wanted on it. So I had one actually made that said, uh, dear cashier, make sure you talk to Chris. He sometimes ignores people, like right as the picture. Uh, and the idea was every piece of technology was going to be a way. And I made it my mission to make it a way to connect to other people in a way that I learned about myself. Does that make sense? Okay. So, uh, so, so I mean, it's, it's hard because sometimes people listen to me and they go, you're crazy. I'm like, well, no, I really care about myself and others. <laughs> That looks crazy nowadays, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of like a cool thing to do. So, you know, location was one. And then, I, then other simple things like uh, changing all the battery percentages on my, on my phone and on my computer to things that aren't battery, but like the one on my computer is based on how, what percentage of my life have I used. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't tick down as fast, but it's a, you know, it looks like I've always got about 60% of my battery, but that's not my battery, that's my life, right? Um, and then just just outrageously simple things like switching all of the settings on all of my units to European. I'm American, uh, so I'd have to see everything in Celsius. Uh, switching all my clocks to 24 hour time because I don't I don't know it. So anything that would involve taking a piece of information or technology and forcing me to slow down and be with it for a moment. Uh, and it just expanded. I mean, it just mushroomed. 2016 was the first time I even explained any of this in a workshop to people. I did it in Paris. It was my first mindful cyborg workshop. And then ever since then, it just, it, it evolves and it moves on and moves on. And, you know, nowadays I have like these really cool things in my house. Uh, this is a, this is something called a today clock. So it's kind of, kind of be a little reflective. Sorry about that. Mm -hmm. But you'll notice it's gradiated. And what it does is it just goes around once per day. Um, so it'll actually show you a, about what time it is without showing you the time. So you just get one circle per day, which is really amazing. And then this one just goes around once per year. So the way it works is you'll notice on the solstice, get it upright on the solstice, it'll be summer solstice. It'll be directly down winter solstice to be directly up. So they both move very slow. <laughs> so again, uh, when I'm not asking technology to, intervene on my behalf to remember to be more deliberate i make sure my house and my environment and my body and my devices are full of constant reminders to either slow time or connect to others because uh, if i slow time i instinctively connect to others if that makes sense mm -hmm. like if i have enough time instinctively it's just like in my body i just know to talk to people but if i feel rushed i literally have to be reminded What I'm thinking is anchors, right? A lot of people in the mindfulness world, they use 
the breath as their anchor, they use sound as their anchor. And it seems that, you know, what you're doing is using devices, using technologies as your anchor to the present moment. Yep. And you just, you just mentioned mindful cyborg. Uh, so could, could you quickly define what mindfulness is to you and, and, and what is mindful cyborg or mindfulness cyborg? Yeah, so I'll, I'll define it backwards. I'll define cyborg, then I'll define mindful cyborg, which will be mindful. I'll define cyborg, mindful, and then mindful cyborg. Uh, so cyborg, okay. uh, cyborg is, you know, at its root, uh, any organism, organ just means living, right? So you can't, be, you can't be a cyborg piece of, you can't be a tape dispenser that's cybernetic. You have to be living, right? So any organism, so something living, uh, that's augmented or enhanced, um, by a piece of technology. So augmented is better, uh, added on to, adorned maybe, uh, or enhanced, uh, made better definitely, uh, by a piece of technology. Technology is a sticky one because if you look up technology, technology can be a book. Uh, if you're a Buddhist, the cushion is a piece of technology, right? So uh, technology is a hard one. So when people hear cyborg, the first thing they think of is robot. When I hear cyborg, and if you do any research in cybernetics, mm -hmm. you understand that it really is just organisms that are enhanced. But something like you're wearing glasses now, this is also a part of technology, right? Exactly. And that's, you know, glasses are a classic example. So uh, the, the defining characteristic of cyborgism, though, is a reliance or a dependence on feedback loops. Right? So there's no real feedback loop with my glasses, except if I take them off, I can't see as well. <laughs> right? oh, oh, there's some feedback, like I'm blind, right? To the, when they're on, all right. So that's cyborg. Uh, so for me, mindfulness, I always go back to, when I think about mindfulness, I always go back to the Kabat-Zinn uh, kind of definition of mindfulness, which was uh, moment by moment, um, non-judgmental awareness. Love all those things. Moment by moment means you're not time traveling. I'm a time junkie. Uh, Non-judgmental means you're you're actively participating in the duality of your thoughts. Uh, awareness meaning uh, there's some touchstone or anchor that's helping you navigate that. So I think the three work together. Moment by moment, non-judgmental awareness. I think just awareness with non-judgmentality is makes you a jerk. Uh, just non-judgmentality without moment by moment kind of makes you soft. Uh, so mindful cyborg. Woo! So how do you mash all that up together? So uh, mindful cyborg is someone who moment by moment reduces bias to their input systems. Mm -hmm. So for me, by, by eliminating or changing the way technology interacts with me, or at least orchestrating it to, I can start to limit the, 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 the thoughts that it helps create that I'm rushed. Um, that someone is out to get me, that the email I just received from someone I've never spoke to has some malice intent, right? So all, you know, and that just means like, you know, I have email filters based on people I know and people I don't and people I don't actually go to a different mailbox and they get read on a different mail program where I control the incoming font. So they look really goofy and fun. Uh, I just, I try to actively look at how I'm going to scan a situation find the fastest way through it and fix that problem. Most people say, that's not a problem. I'm like, well, for me, it is. For me, it is. For me, speed means not moment by moment. Right. Fixing a problem means like I'm judging everything. <laughs> if you're fixing anything, you are literally off, off the rails. Right? There's no fixing in mindfulness. <laughs> so 
I try to actively be a participant in my own technological consumption at a level that probably is a little, I don't know, cybernetically uh, bodhisattva-ish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Only because I think that's, that's what, if you gave Buddha an iPad, he probably would say, okay, this is cute, you know, do something cute with it, you know, hand it to a koala. But uh, yeah, so I don't know. It, it works for me. And I know in the workshops that I teach and, and the little teeny bit that I speak about this when I'm stage, because you don't want to scare people. Uh, and this kind of stuff scares people. Why? Uh, I mean, I think there was a reporter recently who said at best, she goes, can't you do this without technology? Is there something wrong with you? And I said, I could, but I'd rather not. Can you go someplace you've never been without GPS? She said, I could, but I'd rather not. I said, does that scare you? And that ended the conversation. So again, there's, a, <laughs> there's this thing that's so t- dangerous right now when it comes to how we think about people with technology. We just automatically assume that they're not human. We automatically assume that they're not aware or that they're constantly distracted. And uh, Nathan Jurgensen calls this digital duality. And I believe in my experience, people who see me use a device or people who see anyone use a device suddenly make themselves superhuman and, and demote the person using the device to subhuman. Uh, it's, it's pervasive in the United States. You know, why can't you not look at your phone? And, you know, we shame children like as if they're literally smoking crack if they're on their phones too much. And I think, again, technology, I understand, is not everybody's bag, but shame will kill a child faster than a gaming addiction. I think part of I, mean, I have two little kids, right? And uh, when I, one of the one yeah, of the interesting thing <laughs> I am no, no, no. But one of the interesting thing I noticed, right? And it's always like a big conflict uh, between how should we let the kids to deal with the technology, right? So one thing I observe is that it's very attractive, right? It brings your dopamine up immediately, and you really want to keep watching the screens and to have this way better than uh, you know building your own toys if you have a, lo- a lot of food and stuff and just you, you build it no yeah you have the game ready right so that when i go outside in the park now i start noticing kids that are sitting on a you know on a bench all around in a kind of next to and one is playing with a game yeah. on the little screen yeah. And outside, it's sunny, there are yeah. flowers, it's amazing sand, it's a beautiful day, but they're really there in this little yeah. screen. Also, and this is what is making, I think, parents care, scared of like, I don't really want kids to really interpret the beauty of the world as yeah. non-interesting because this little thing is way more interesting and made more fulfilling yeah. in that particular moment, right? Yeah. So what would you say? I mean, that's hard. I mean, because, you know, again... I, when I say these types, and I've done specific keynotes at conferences where I'm a much more direct and much more hard than I am being right now, because I am sensitive that my message is a little direct, especially people with children and they've already defined strict rules. Mm-hmm. So let me be real clear. Uh, this is how I treat my children. <laughs> all right. This is, I'm not prescribing parenting advice. All right. With that said, uh, I do find that parents don't have a problem with their children on technology if they're busy and they need them to be distracted. Like the, if, you need, if you need to get something done, you'll hand your kid a tablet. 
Okay. If your kid's a teenager and you're worried about them, the first thing you'll do is check their location. Right? If your kid is 10 and you want to make sure they don't download anything bad, you set up a service to ask you permission. Right? So what I have a problem with is how per parenting has turned into the software-defined event when it's convenient for dad, but it's not good if dad wants you to enjoy the world. Uh, so I think parents either have to double down and just become real active participants with their children or like just kind of give it up and say, how do I incorporate? How do I integrate the two together? So for our eight-year-old, you know, our Alexa doesn't respond unless she says please and thank you, right? For our eight-year-old, uh, when she wants to download a game, we take a screenshot of everyone we approve. And then once a week, we sit down and go through all the screenshots and say, show me this game and how you're using it. Uh, for our eight year old, we, we have time limits, uh, not set up, but we have time, uh, barriers set up. So, you know, you can't be on it in the middle of the night. Uh, we're sleeping and, you know, it's going to be hard to keep track of that. Um, so we use a lot of technology to manage our relationship with our child. I'm fortunate. Our eight year old likes Legos. Our eight year old likes to go outside, likes puppies. She's eight, right? There's certain that she's not like consumed, but I see, and I hear about, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 year olds that maybe don't have as much of a balance. Mm -hmm. And for those, I understand it probably can be a lot scarier than my perfect cybernetic little eight year old. Mm -hmm. And I think in that case, we need to be very, very strategic around, well, how bad could it get? So the reality is there's two big things that we don't need to worry about for the future. One, no one's looking at screens in a decade, right? No one's, I, I really don't think anyone is walking around looking at a phone. I think they've got something on and they've got something in their ear. Uh, worst case scenario, right? Uh, just, I just think screens and their, our relationship with them is changing, which is a whole other bag of scary, much scary if you ask me. The second thing I think we have to be really conscious of is we also have a world full of people that don't know how to interact with each other anymore. So mm -hmm. my partner is a school teacher at a high school and kids don't interact like I remember them interacting, but that doesn't mean they're less human, right? doesn't mean they're, they're, they're differently human, right? So emojis and memes and gifts and things are kind of how they share jokes. So I, I think, you know, in the second leg, I also need to be a little bit flexible with how I practice humanness in a world full of mini cyborgs, right? It looks like a game to you possibly when you're playing, but I know for a lot of kids, that's where their only friends are. <laughs> their only friends are online, right? I literally know children who told me my only friends are online. Um, makes me sad. I, I share that. I wish we could go back, uh, but it doesn't scare me as much as I think it scares some people. Does that... Did I phrase that in a way that didn't seem too confrontational? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Because it's very touchy. I didn't realize how... I mean, you can be confrontational. With, I mean, were, you know, mindfulness is also non-judgmental, right? As we were... Right, right, right. I, mean, I didn't want to even... I literally was going to answer the question with that, but then I thought, you know, no. <laughs> no, I, I'm... Uh, it's a very... It's a huge problem because I think it's also the... Uh, you know, if we consider in the long time ago right when even the telephone was a scary thing for people right there were or the radio or many more like every new technological advancement has been for someone creepy the tv was something that maybe didn't didn't 
come immediately as a cool thing. People were gathering in a pub, right, to, to see yeah. TV, right? It wasn't a family thing that you have 50 of them everywhere. Uh, now it's another change. And uh, knowing that you have, um, you know, uh, the only, the only, knowing that it, it's a possibility and that it's never, you're never going to go back, I think it's, it's important. But it's also important perhaps to, to let people understand, particularly the kids, uh, that these things are way more attractive because they are designed in this particular level just for you, for humans, and that's obviously they're attractive. And behind there is sometimes also a... Okay, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. But let's be careful. You're starting to skate toward the danger zone again. Okay. I agree with you need to explain that things are designed to be more dangerous. But I would start that conversation at the store in the checkout line pointing to gum. Right, they need to understand that the design for more dangerous to hook your attention starts way before screens, and we're missing that. And what we're going to lose, and what scares me, is what the world looks like in 10 or 15 years. I'm 50, right? When literally people are influenced because they only were taught to value what they could see, not what they felt or heard, or you know, go to Disney, Disney has a way of ushering you through the park with sounds and music and scents, you know, without any screens, you mm -hmm. just float from place to place. Right. So I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm just like, cause I, I had to deal with this. Cause like, I thought to myself, I need to sit my eight year old's destiny. I said, I need to sit down with destiny and explain to her, you know, that TikTok. she loves TikTok. And it's designed to keep you coming back. And I thought, you know what, how would you do this? and not be biased? How would you do this and not be so judgmental about the technology? I literally had this talk with myself like three, two years ago when she was six. And we did it with the grocery store. And now when we're in stores and we're near the checkout where all the fun stuff is that they want you to buy, she points to them. I go, what's grabbing your attention? So again, I, I think I'm real, I love talking to people about what catches their attention. For example, let's talk about the internet. Let's not even talk about like social media. Like mm -hmm. I can't look at a news article without seeing the, the title. And if it's a title that interests me, that's why it's called clickbait. I'll get, and like, I, I know that I do this, right? Then the next thing I look at is, is like, not even the article. I literally look at the date. If it's more than a week old, I skip it. A week, mm -hmm. literally. You know how often you have to create content for me? I, you have, I mean, there needs to be a whole factory just making new web pages for me if you want me to read stuff. And uh, the third thing <laughs> is I look at the length, right? And, I, and, and it's now articles that even tell you at the top how long it'll take to read. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if it's not a good title, it's not less than a week old, and it's not four minutes or less, with bold and pictures and no ads, I'm not going to eat. <laughs> and do you play before the videos embedded in it, or you just go and reading? I mean, it's, I'm just, I'm trying to make it real clear. I am hooked and, and full of bias very quickly. So, no, what I do is I actually use a lot of little plugins to remove all of that. I use one plugin that removes all dates and times when I'm in my web browser. So I'm not influenced to skip something. I always keep everything in chronological order. I don't allow it to be algorithmically, algorithmically sorted for me. Uh, every price on the internet gets changed to the hours I have to work by a plugin that looks at the price of things and, and changes it to be the hours I have to work because I put my salary in the plugin. Um, so again, I, I I'm super aware of how attention works, at least my attention. And I love talking about that with other people because I wish more people would say how easily they're influenced because I think we'd feel less lonely, 
you know, we wouldn't sneak to the bathroom to check our phones while we used the bathroom. You know, we could just say, I'm really influenced because I'm waiting for an important email from my boss. That would start a whole conversation during dinner with someone you just met, then sneaking to the bathroom to check for the email mm -hmm. from your boss. Would it be a mindful practice, this, Pat? I think so. <laughs> you know, I, I think it's a super mindful practice. It's definitely a super mindful tip. I think there's been a lot of them uh, today. But uh, Chris, if you could share with us uh, some tips or tricks, your favorite or, you know, what the audience could get from this when it comes to an actual practice. Sure. So I think there's two I'd like to share with you guys. Uh, the one is just uh, working with Facebook. So I think um, Facebook is one of those tools that, you know, a lot of people like to, to bash, but unfortunately, a lot of older people my age and older are really still like, a, you know, on it a lot. Um, there's a tool that you can put it in your show notes. You can Google it by Ben Grosser, G-R-O-S-S-E-R. Uh, and uh, just Google Facebook Ben Grosser. And it's a plugin that goes into Chrome, so it works across everything. Now, it won't work on your mobile, unfortunately, but it'll work on your computer. Um, and it removes all the dates and likes. Um, and I always encourage people, it's kind of a mindful practice, install it and see how long you can use Facebook till you feel uncomfortable. Because one of the first things people tell me after just 30 seconds is it's hard to use Facebook without dates because they don't know when things were posted. And when they can't see the number of likes, they also have a hard time. And when I said, well, what is it hard? You know, what's hard about it? You know, well, the fonts change. I'm like, actually, no. And it takes me a while to get people to kind of own it. But what they own is like, they need to see the numbers, which is really a powerful statement. So that would be my first tip that I think will work for everyone. The second tip that, you know, I'd love for your listeners or for you guys to try, you know, just for a week, if you're in Europe or a part of the world that uses Celsius, change it to Fahrenheit, force your mind to work a little, <laughs> press your mind when you see that number to go, oh, I did this because I want to become more mindful with my technology. Or if you're someone who really, that's a bridge too far, because uh, I'll be honest with you, Celsius is some, to Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit to Celsius, depending on where you are, is some real kung fu if you want to be mindful with your phone. Uh, just do the time. So go to 24-hour time if you're in a 12-hour time zone and mm -hmm. uh, go to 12-hour time if you're not. Uh, I think those are the two quickest, easiest things to help people set mindfulness practices. My goal would be you should be able to have every alarm turned on on your phone and it never makes you feel crazy. <laughs> it just, it's like it's just your external breath. Um, okay. Yeah. That's uh, I I I did exactly the opposite. Mm -hmm. So I switch off every notification, everything, and I try to be mindful of checking things yeah. when I in some time of the day. Right. So I had the total opposite solution to the to the same issue. I don't know. I'm, yeah. I we never know which I, one is the best. But yeah, in, uh, yeah, when, when I first, you know, when I first started, I had turned everything off in 2015. I mean, I was. I'd become like a notification hunter. Like, like, like that was my skill. I was like a big game notification hunter. But then what I realized was not hearing or seeing them actually made me more interested in them. <laughs> I, be, I became the notification checker. Okay. So uh, it's much, for me, you know, I had to reverse that. You know what I mean? It's just like when people try to quit or limit their time on Facebook, they actually, or any service, they actually think about it more, right? So, mm. you know, I think depending on where your practice is, if you're someone who needs the silence, you know, again, I am not encouraging anyone to turn on all their notifications. I think, you know, do what I have suggested right now for a couple months and then try it, you know? But it's, it's great fun also if you're a family and you're all at dinner and you've all got devices, Turn all your phones on, and every time they beep, 
like have a moment of silence at dinner, right? Literally, you can literally infuse all those notifications into active practice. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's the delightful thing about uh, mass, mass awakening uh, is it'll happen with or without us, but we could hurry it up if we tried. I, I like the fact that uh, based on what you're saying, Chris, you, you went to both sides of the spectrum, right? You totally went away, right, from notifications, from technology, silent retreats, and then you totally went into it. Yeah. And now you've, like you said, you found your, the, pen, the pendulum found its little golden mean. And you understand both worlds, which allows you to speak about it, you know, from personal experience. And I think our listeners and people, to enhance your awareness, you have to become more aware of each of those realms by going into it and experiencing it for some time. Well, thank you. I mean, that's really good feedback for me to hear. I do sometimes struggle because I feel a little alone uh, in how I practice. Um, and I just wish there was, you know, we've got a lot of brilliant thought leaders uh, in the world uh, when it comes to mindfulness and meditation. Um, but every single one of them is telling you to live in a cave. And I just don't think anyone can afford to be digitally Amish. You know, it'd be different if it was 2012, but everyone's jobs depend on being connected. Everybody's Families depend on being connected. A lot of people's health depends on being connected. We've put a really bad time to tell people they're monsters for trying to be human. Yeah. I think for uh, someone that would really try to practice mindfulness, it shouldn't matter if you're in a cave or if you're fully connected. Both are equally okay. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and then it depends on the individual and on the moment, perhaps. And I think the way you are reasoning and you brought into your life, it's, uh, it's fascinating and it has a lot uh, learning power in it. So you can, uh, and, and we all, perhaps everybody of us, us for mindfulness practice, will have a different response to the same kind of relationship with devices, but we've all perhaps got to try it out with our skin and see how we, we enjoy it, right? Yeah. Do you guys ever use any uh, meditation apps? Uh, yes. There's uh, one named Butterf 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 Butterfly. I think he pronounced it's Butterfly or it's Budify. Uh, a guy named Rowan, Ronan, uh, who now works at uh, the Department of Health in uh, Scotland, created it. And uh, I talked to him once about it, and he said something I just, it really changed my whole view of technology and mindfulness practice. And he said to me, I said, how do you deal with, oh, I remember what it was. At the time, this big app called Headspace, everyone was mm -hmm. talking about it like three years ago. And Headspace was becoming like the de facto mind hacker uh, tool. And I said to him, so how do you deal with people who maybe used to like your app, but now they've moved on? And he said to me, Chris, we designed Budify to be something you use until you can practice without it. And then we don't expect you to use it. Mm -hmm. And I just thought to myself, I wish all technology instead of making the devices and the services temporary that you need to get a new one, that they literally were made so that once you graduated from them, they just stopped working because they knew you were doing the work. Uh, that just seemed like such a healthy way. But again, Ronan is super, super Kung Fu mindful. So you should have him on your show. That would be cool. 
Chris, I, I noticed the same thing. I started using a, an app and I use it from time to time, but mostly because I'm searching for new ways of practicing for you know, my practice group and so on. But otherwise, if I, I stopped using a lot of this kind of guided meditation, it's more like me and my mind usually. Yeah. Uh, but maybe one final question I have for you before closing. You know, there, there are many people talk about uh, digital detox, right? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so, and the way, like, you know, I go for holiday and I totally disconnect and so on. What would be your way instead to live with the digital world, right? So, and to still feel in peace. You know, I, suggestion. It, yeah, it, I mean, it's hard because I think when I think, when I think of digital detox, I think of people who literally pay to go to a place that has no technology or limited technology. I mean, mm-hmm. there are actually like detox vacations now where it's, you know, you're literally paying extra to be inconvenienced. Um, I'm just not a big fan because I think, again, just the concept of unplugging is dangerous. The concept of detoxing is dangerous because if you're digitally detoxing, then what are you doing when you come back from vacation? Are you toxifying? I, I mean, again, I just don't like the, I, I don't like how it sits if you follow the train of thought all the way through. I love the idea of digitally detoxing. I like the idea, but, but I have to come back, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So I don't know. I, to me, there's an inherent problem with that entire uh, concept that I think is more dangerous than healthy. Like the emails after you come from holidays, right? You spend the next week just being stressed of what you didn't answer and so on. And that doesn't make you, yeah, very yeah. happy. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, you know, I mean, we could make this all really simply, a simple with, you know, uh, what's stressing people out about keeping up on their vacation? Well, it's, it's, it's insecurity, right? So, you know, if your challenge is, is fear of insecurity, then work on that. Don't work on unplugging. Work on building your resiliency around being secure regardless. You know, live smaller, live simpler, spend less, give more. Realize that half a plate of food is more than enough in most restaurants, right? But again, most people who need to detox are usually consumption addicts, not tech addicts. And consumption goes across the spectrum. Mm -hmm. So I hope that was uh, too much, not too much of a non-answer, but I do struggle with detoxes. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> thank you, thank you, gentlemen. Chris, it was great to have you on the show today. Uh, Lily, thank you for being, and uh, have a mindful rest of the day. Thank you, guys. And don't it was a pleasure. To, don't forget to keep yourself in airplane mode. <laughs> <laughs>